God, you rule the nations and find time to rule our hearts. You sit in glory and yet find time to sit with us. You created us but are never bored with us. God, we are continually dazzled by your holiness, by your righteous ways, and by your control of our days. We now open your love letter to us, your revelation of yourself on the pages before us. Even though we are in familiar territory today, help it to land on us fresh. Help us not to rush to the end of the story, but marinate in the tension. During my preaching, would you fill the gaps of my deficiencies and help it to be a demonstration of the power of God? Please take this text and use it to embolden your frightened children, to wake up your sleeping children, to steady your staggering children and to bring into your fold new children. Do this among us for the praise of your glory. Amen. We are approaching an old and busted and bruised text. <laughs> an old busted and bruised story. It's old and busted because everyone has heard it preached. It's perhaps the most common Old Testament story told in kids' church. It's a go-to for pastors if they ever actually preach the Old Testament. If I were a betting man, and uh, you know how pastors like to gamble, I, I would wager you've heard this Old Testament story preached more than any other. Even those of you with us who are non-Christians, you've heard of the David and Goliath story. It's referenced in boxing events, talking about an underdog story. It's in college basketball where a, a big school faces the small school. This is the David and Goliath story. In March Madness, it's the 16 seed beating the one seed. David beat Goliath. Everyone knows the David and Goliath story. But do you really know it? Here's why you need what I'm about to lay down. One, when most of you have heard this story preached, you've heard it, might I say, wrongly, maybe too strong, inadequately, may not be strong enough. Pastors and teachers can butcher this story easily, and that's what often happens. They do not treat it with integrity. They play fast and loose with it. You need this exposition today because you need to see this text treated with integrity. We do not want to bruise this story. I'm not denying this is well-plowed ground. I'm just afraid it's been plowed incorrectly. The second reason you need what I'm about to lay down is this story reveals something about your God that you desperately need to understand. He's laying out an aspect of his character on paper. And it should make us fall on our knees and worship. The third reason you need this story is because God may use this story to open your eyes about how to interpret all the stories of the Old Testament. That's what happened to me. 
Ten years ago, I heard Graham Goldsworthy preach this text like I had never heard anyone before. It impacted me. I thought, I've missed this for, for years. How have I missed this? Goldsworthy used it to teach me biblical theology. The quest for the big picture, the overview, the unfolding drama of redemption. The riches of Christ are inexhaustible in the Old Testament and biblical theology is a way to uncover them. Biblical theology is allowing the Bible to tell its own story. Seeing each individual act within a series of progressive acts that God deploys to save his people from their sins. What a proper treatment of this text did for me 10 years ago, I'm hoping will do for you today. Here's how we will go at it. First, approaching the David and Goliath story with fresh eyes. It's 58 verses. The narrator tells the story slowly and dramatically for full effect. I want to pull all that out to feel the tension, to be on location, to see the sweat pouring and the hands shaking. Pray even now, Lord, help me to go into this text with fresh eyes. Help me to see what before I have not seen. Put me in the text watching with eager expectation. One, Approaching the David and Goliath story with fresh eyes. Secondly, how to make the David and Goliath story about yourself. This is how people bruise the text. Butcher the text. Misuse the text. Misread the text. They view it as a single act disconnected from all of God's other acts. Which leads to preaching a moralistic, therapeutic sermon. One-dimensional preachers, that's what I call them. One-dimensional preachers, they can only view the text with an eye toward imitation. May we not be clumsy and botch one of the most dramatic narratives in the Old Testament. Thirdly, revealing how the David and Goliath story points to Christ. We'll take them one at a time and spend the majority of our time on the first one. But let's begin approaching the David and Goliath story with fresh eyes. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah. Jump to verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. With, the, with a valley between them. So let's picture this. The Philistine army mustered together their troops on one mountain, while the Israelite army countered on another mountain. Three football fields in length separated the two. Below lies a, a, a wadi, uh, which, which in the wintertime runs freely, which in the summertime is a, is a dry riverbed. If either of the armies were to make an advance on the other, then for them to come down one side would immediately make them vulnerable to the army on the other side. So it's a stalemate. Everyone waits. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. 
The Israelite soldiers are, are viewing the enemy from their bunkers. Suddenly they see the giant of a man come out. The Philistines call him Goliath. He hit the genetic jackpot at birth. He's nine feet, nine inches tall. He's taller than Shaquille O'Neal. He makes Yao Ming look vertically challenged. He's a champion. Not an NBA champion, but a military champion. He doesn't have championship rings on his shelves. He has Israelite heads. Those are his trophies. One ancient Jewish writing said he was the one who killed Hophni and Phinehas. Some historians believe Goliath had a disorder known as gigantism. That's excessive abnormal growth hormones. Basically, he never stops growing. The tallest man alive today is in Turkey, and he has this disorder. He's eight feet, two inches tall. Goliath still has uh, one foot, seven inches on him. So they say Goliath could have had the, an ancient form of gigantism. But I don't think so. Men that have gigantism aren't very athletic. They lumber around, and they aren't known as champions. Goliath was a tested warrior, not some Guinness Book of World Records attraction. He came from a family of giants, all incredible athletic military warriors. And, and what's interesting here is how the narrator goes on and on to describe Goliath. This may be the most detailed physical description of a person anywhere in the Bible. He continues in verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. A coat of mail. Why is he carrying mail? Did he work for the post office as a side gig? No. This is a, this is a really bad translation of the Hebrew word koskeseth. Koskeseth. I don't know why Bible translators keep going with the word mail. Uh, the same Hebrew word is used seven other places and it's always translated scales. The Hebrew word means scales. He wore a coat of scales like fish scales or, or snake scales. Hundreds of jointed overlapping bronze plates. Literally he had scale armor. This coat of scales protected the body down to the knees. The coat itself weighed 126 pounds. His helmet was made of bronze. The Philistines were one of the most technologically advanced nations of the day. They were high-tech, cutting-edge, like a whole nation of Elon Musk's. They had state-of-the-art weaponry. And this is what the narrator is pointing out. They were masters in working with bronze. That's why you, you have the repeated mention of bronze in the text. Verse 6, and he, had a, and he had bronze armor on his legs. Now that's bronze shin guards. And I like this phrase, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of a spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. His sword was so big that the average hands couldn't hold it. They couldn't get their hands around the shaft. It was so thick. Uh, the tip of the spear, not the spear itself, the, the tip of the spear weighed 15 pounds. Uh, imagine holding a massive long spear and having a 15-pound kettlebell on the end. Goliath had his own shield carrier. 
this shield was the equivalent of a, of a bedroom door. Huge giant, huge sword, huge shield. His appearance was psychologically overpowering. He, he's, he's a menacing, terrifying figure, and his armor is impenetrable. This hairy-chested beast is covered from head to toe in state-of-the-art combat gear. The sun reflected off the bronze to make this man more intimidating and blinding. His scale armor gives him the appearance of a serpent. He's a champion clothed like a serpent. Interesting note, there is only one weak spot in this advanced snake armor. It was the absence of protection for the face. Verse 8, the, this serpent champion stands and shouts to the ranks of Israel and he says, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Evidently, to save the inevitable massacre and bloodshed, this mammoth of a man suggests that the Israelites send their top warrior to do battle with him. If, if I kill you, your nation will be our slaves. If you kill me, our nation will be your slaves. One fight to the death. It's very efficient. Only one person dies. It's a high-stakes contest. A war between two nations settled by a single combat. Verse 10, and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The soldiers are psychologically and emotionally broken. They are paralyzed by fear. Church, let me ask you a question. Why isn't Saul going out to fight Goliath? He's the logical choice to fight. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's the closest thing that Israel has to a giant. Besides, kings in this day were not like generals in our day. They didn't stay in the back in their nice cushioned offices. They were warriors on the front lines. Israel's giant needs to fight the Philistines' giant. But that isn't going to happen. The spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and there was no fight left in him. The narrator goes on to introduce new characters into the story. Verse 12. Now David was the son of a, an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. He had eight sons. Pick it up in verse 13. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Jesse, the father, sends a care package while his three oldest boys are deployed. They didn't have military mail, so Jesse sent it by his youngest son, his smallest son, his runt son, 
David. In addition, unlike modern armies, soldiers in ancient armies had to provide their own food while in battle. Grubhub and DoorDash didn't exist yet, so it was a good thing that David is bringing burgers for his big brothers. Truthfully, David brought cheese and bread because meat was a rarity in the typical Israelite diet. David is not there as a soldier. He's there as a son. Tom Schreiner believes David is 17 years old here. He had to be 20 to be in the army. That's why he's not there. Historians say David was about 5 feet 3 inches. The Hebrews were not an ethnically tall group. David was likely the height of my wife. Verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. Each side had their own war cry. If you watch college football, you see how we have sissified this age-old tradition. The Auburn Tigers battle cry is War Eagle. The Florida State Seminoles and the Atlanta Braves have their tomahawk war cry. The Florida Gators have their gator chomp. Israel sang their war cry. Something that called on Yahweh for help, I imagine. And the Philistines sang their war cry. It took a lot of research to find this pagan war cry, but I don't spend all week researching for nothing. So I found it. And the pagan war cry went like this. Rocky Top, you'll always be home, sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top, Rocky Top, Tennessee. It's a, it's a pagan war cry. Verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Mark those words. David heard him. That's likely the first time David ever heard the God of Israel mocked. The author reveals to us earlier in the text that Goliath did this two times a day for 40 days. Eighty times Goliath mocked the God of Israel and his people. Verse 24, and the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. In the face of taunt, they ran like little chickens. Goliath sings his battle cry and does his taunting dance, which likely wasn't the tomahawk, but maybe something like LeBron's silencer, symbolically walking around, pushing down on the floor, silencing his enemies. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this? Notice the derogatory term. Uncircumcised Philistine. That he should defy the armies of the living God. 
This is the first time David speaks in the Bible. He's been literarily mute before this. And the first thing out of his mouth is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That's Old Testament trash talk. The army sees Goliath as a giant. David sees him as a blasphemer. See the difference? David doesn't see his size. He only sees him defying the living God. David is effectively saying, hey, look at all the soldiers, all, all the SF and, and OF, I don't, I don't know military. All of the, he's looking at all the soldiers. These big, strong, tough people, and he's saying, doesn't the glory of God matter anymore? He's insulting the living God. The word defy or mock or deride is used six times in the text. This is what Goliath came on the scene to do. Not just to, to destroy the Israelite soldiers, but to mock their God and defy his name. David is zealous for God's reputation. We can't allow this serpent champion to trample God's name. You don't do that to the living God. This abominable blasphemer must be silenced. See what David's doing? He's bringing a whole new worldview. A theological perspective the others did not have. May we, like David, live like we actually believe we are the children of God. The rest of Israel is walking around with identity amnesia. David was shocked at no man's willingness to fight this behemoth of a man. He inquired more of the situation. What, what happens to the man who kills this blasphemer? Some soldiers gathered around tell him, uh, to the one who kills Goliath, uh, his family will never have to pay taxes again. He'll receive a big load of cash, and he will marry the king's daughter. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled at David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David's older brother, Eliab, mocks David, just like Goliath mocked Israel. There are two mockers in the text. Eliab questions his kid brother's intentions. There is history between these two. The oldest and the youngest. Sibling rivalry. What are you doing here? Why aren't you minding, minding your own business, tending that scrawny little flock of sheep? I know what you're up to. You've come down to see the sights, hoping for a ringside seat at a bloody battle. David, like Joseph, was opposed by his older brothers. Verse 29, And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? In other words, all I did was ask a question. When David's words about the reputation of God were reported to Saul, it went all the way up the, the chain of command. That's, that's how unusual it was for someone to be offended that God would be derided like this. 
When David's words about the reputation of God were reported to Saul, Saul wants to meet him. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go out against the Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. You've got spunk, kid. But you're in way over your head. He's been fighting as long as you've been alive. David is respectful in his response, yet nonetheless disputed the king's poor assessment of his fitness. I've lived with God through many solitary days. I've seen God deliver me. I have trophies on my shelves in Bethlehem. Once a lion came to attack my sheep, that lion's head is on my shelf. Once a ferocious Syrian bear took a lamb, so I took his head. It's on my trophy shelf in Bethlehem. After, I knelt down on my new bear rug and thanked God for giving me that kill. David explains the ground of his confidence. It's the Lord, Yahweh, the living God. He delivered from the paw of the lion. He delivered from the paw of the bear. He will deliver from the paw of this uncircumcised pig. Just as God used me to save my literal sheep, he will use me to save his, he looks at the army, metaphorical sheep. Verse 37, And Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Which sounds nice. But, but it's probably like, good luck. Oh, and here's my armor. Put that on. David did. He put on Saul's helmet and Saul's armor, Saul's big sword. He couldn't fight in this stuff. It's too big. Saul was much bigger than David. The armor engulfs him. It encumbers him. David says, I'm not going to fight Goliath looking like Goliath, wearing a helmet, body armor, and carrying a sword. I'll just go out like this, and it will be known. That the Lord did it. Verse 40. Then David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook. And put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. (laughs) Both, Both David and the Philistine made their way down into the wadi. That dry riverbed. There are three football fields in length from one end to the other. They are each marching forward. David, uh, Goliath, the closer he gets, the bigger he looks. David, the closer he gets, the more Goliath begins to laugh. His opponent clearly lacks the experience to fight. He's a mere boy, an apple-cheeked, peach-fuzzed boy. Verse 43, and the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? David, in addition to his slings and his sling and stones, had a traditional walking stick, still seen in the Middle East to aid one in walking and warding off dogs. Goliath didn't mention anything about the slingshot. I don't think he noticed it. Maybe David camouflaged it. I don't believe Goliath would have discounted the sling. Slings were, were not just used by shepherds, but they were used in battle by armies as well. Multiple historians, I read 
two weeks ago, said an ancient, well-trained slinger could send a stone anywhere from 60 to 150 miles an hour. Goliath said to David, I'll make roadkill of you. Leave you for the buzzards. I'll turn you into a tasty morsel for the, for the field mice. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and, all, and, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David's speech, 63 words. The combat itself, 36 words. Verse 48. When the, Philistines arose, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground Goliath is evidently knocked unconscious but not yet dead so David ran over to Goliath grabbed his sword and decapitated him gave him the ultimate head wound when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead they fled Scattering for their lives. They didn't keep their word about becoming slaves. The army of Israel ch chased them at, at least 10 miles, killing them one by one. Notice the contrast in the text of the Israelite army. From, from the beginning of the chapter to the end of the chapter. First they were scared. Now they have peace. What changed? They saw the giant fall. Verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. David took Goliath's giant head and brought it to Jerusalem. Now this has confused scholars because Jerusalem at this time was not under Israelite rule. It was controlled by the Jebusites. It's possible that David slipped over there one night and affixed the giant head of Goliath to a wall putting the Jebusites on notice. Do not defy the God of Israel. David took Goliath's sword and placed it in his tent. What tent? David wasn't on the front lines. He didn't bring a tent. He wasn't planning to spend the night. What tent? Well, Israel plundered the Philistines after the defeat, so David took Goliath's tent. What used to belong to Goliath now belongs to David. It's interesting that David kept accusing Goliath of a capital crime in Israel. The crime was blasphemy. Leviticus 24.16 says blasphemy is punishable by death. But a certain kind of death. Death by a certain means. Death by stoning. 
David stoned him with a small stone. Another interesting fact, King Saul was a Benjamite, meaning he came from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Peter Lightheart points out that in Judges, the Benjamites were known for their prowess with the sling. It says that in Judges chapter 20, verse 16. Israel had a Benjamite king, good with the sling. But they needed someone from the tribe of Judah. David, who out-Benjamined the Benjamite. Now, before we jump into the final two movements of this exposition, let's talk about the seeming contradiction that we find in this story. Notice in verse 55. And soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistines, Saul said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. Now, for those of you who have been following along through the First Samuel series, last week, David was the guitar player. This week, he's the giant slayer. But the chronology of these two chapters do not line up perfectly. At the end of chapter 16, David is in Saul's service, in his private chambers, playing an instrument to drive out the harmful spirit. Here in chapter 17, Saul doesn't know David. In chapter 16, it says Saul loves David. In chapter 17, he asks, who is this youth? How is that possible? A couple options. Option one. We modern people think history can only be given in chronological order. The ancients didn't think in that way. They organized events to make certain contrasts and parallels. Chapter 17 may very well be before chapter 16. Uh, the, the historical narratives tied, narrators tied stories together thematically, not just chronologically. Now that's option one. That's, that's what I hold. Now option two. Alistair Begg, <laughs> Alistair Begg said someone in this church once asked him, uh, why haven't you preached through 1 Samuel yet? Been through all the other books. Begg said, I don't want to preach through it until I know how the chronology works. Begg came to a different conclusion than I did. He thinks Saul does know David, but needed to know his father's name for freeing the family from taxation. Who is the boy's father? So I can formulate an edict. It's possible. Now the second movement. Second movement. How to make the David and Goliath story about yourself. If you moralize this story, which is what most people do when they teach it, if you moralize this story, then Goliath simply becomes a title for tackling some gigantic problem or obstacle in your life. It may be the giant of disease or the giant of debt or weight problems or addiction. But you gather your five stones and you defeat your giants. <laughs> These preachers. You focus on Goliath and you will fall. You focus on God and your giants will fall. One of our ladies was teaching this story to our kids a couple weeks ago. And I asked her before the service, I said, what, what are you teaching the kids this morning? They're working through the Bible. She says, uh, we're on the David and Goliath story. And then she said, 
you know I'm about to go in there and tell them to grab their stones and defeat their giants. And then she laughed and walked off. <laughs> she was joking, of course. She gave our kids better theology from this story than most adults receive from their pastors. I failed to ask her if she sang. Only a boy named David, only a little sling. Only a boy named David, but he could pray and sing. You remember this? Well, then join me. Only a boy named David, only a rippling brook. Only a boy named David, but five little stones he... One little stone went in the sling, and the sling went round and round, and round and round and round and round. There's a lot of rounds. I don't know how many there are. And then the, the little stone went into the air, and the giant came tumbling down. I like the song. I don't like how some people treat the text. This story hasn't only captured the imagination of children. It has tested the minds of theologians. All this junk about being courageous and facing your giants... You understand that this is a shallow understanding, even a deceptive understanding of how to read the text. That was not the author's intent when he gave it to you. The authority lies with the author, not the reader. You don't have the right to mistreat the author's intent. Moralizing this text puts out a be like David overtone. Moralizing, what is that? Moralizing is drawing an attractive characteristic from a person's life and challenging people to have that in their life. Moralizing. So those who teach the text say, you need to get five stones and you need to go after your giant. Well, it, it sounds good. But what if you do not slay the giant? What if you throw all your stones and none of them kill your giant? What if you try to cut off the head of your giant, but it gets up and laughs at you? What's the purpose of this story to imitate David? We do not read the Old Testament like a Jewish rabbi. We must not limit the Old Testament narratives to moral examples, whether they be positive or negative. We must get to Christ, which is what our third movement does. Revealing how the David and Goliath story points to Christ. Revealing how the David and Goliath story points to Christ. Now, if I were using this story, if I were not using this story as a way to teach you, and I were just preaching like it's a regular Sunday, then I would only use one of the three I'm about to give you. But since I'm, I'm teaching you this, I, I want to give you three today. Three ways the story points to Christ. It, it's important... It's important for me to know that, that you know that there are different ways to faithfully get to Christ from an Old Testament text. So let me give you three ways. Way number one, finding our champion. Who will defeat the serpent warrior? Finding our champion. Who will defeat the serpent warrior? Did you notice that Goliath was covered in scales? He had a coat of scales. He was dressed like a serpent. And he would die like a serpent. He would die of a head wound. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel are obsessed with head wounds. Even those who escape beheadings get their hair or beard caught in something on the way to their demise. Now do you remember way back in the garden? The serpent was punished because he lured Adam and Eve to sin. The serpent of course was Satan. 
Our text is merely another episode in that original battle. In 1 Samuel 17, Goliath becomes a part of the serpent's warfare. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman, Jesus was born of woman, that the seed of the woman would one day destroy the serpent by a head wound. In our story, this, this Old Testament David, this serpent killer, provides a preview of a coming attraction of a greater than David who will one day deliver his people. We look at this story and, and go on a, on a search using biblical theology to find our champion. Jesus, who delivers the final head wound to the ultimate snake warrior. The message of the Gospels is what? Do not lose hope, for our David is here. Finding our champion is Jesus. All right, that's one way you could go at it. Way number two. Finding our place in the story. How does this affect me? Finding our place in the story, how does this affect me? The, the David and Goliath story was not a backyard brawl between a bully and an underdog. I want you to notice the end of verse 43. The Philistine, that, that's Goliath, the Philistine cursed David by his gods. When Goliath introduces his gods, he introduces the fact that this battle is actually, ultimately, between the God of the Philistines and the God of Israel. Two nations, the, this battle represents a struggle between their gods. And you may be saying, Kyle, what? Well, mm, that's a great story. But I don't have a dog in the fight. I really don't care if David won or if Goliath won, but, you know, it's it fun. Thanks for helping me relive, relive the story. Well, you actually have a lot more than a dog in the fight. You have a soul in the fight. What would have happened if David lost that day? If David lost that day, you would have lost that day. How so? Well, we shouldn't only look at David from 1 Samuel 17, but also throughout the whole Bible. You find David in Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy of Jesus. So let's just follow Matthew's genealogy. If David had been killed by Goliath, then there would be no David. C can we agree to that? Okay. If David had been killed by Goliath, there would be no David. If there were no David, then there would have been no Solomon. If there were no Solomon, follow the genealogy to the end, there would be no Jesus. In Luke, Jesus' genealogy is traced through David's son, Nathan. If there were no David, there would be no Nathan. If there were no Nathan, follow the genealogy to the end, there would be no Jesus. If there were no Jesus, then you would be lost for eternity. This battle is, is not just about David. It's about redemption. It's about salvation. God is fighting for you. If David had been killed that day, then God's plan throughout the ages would have failed. But instead, Satan's endeavor to eliminate the chosen seed failed. He was trying to stop Jesus from being born. This story is not about David. It's about Jesus. Why did David win? He did not win because he spent hours practicing with his sling. He won because God would stop at nothing to bring his son into the world to face Calvary and redeem a fallen people. 
Do not see yourself overcoming the giant. See God overcoming the giant. In the David and Goliath story, we find Satan's failed attempt, failed attempt to stop the leak before the flood of Jesus' mercy and forgiveness overtakes humanity. We know something Goliath didn't know. He didn't know the fight was fixed. <laughs> you are not David. But if you're obsessed with finding yourself in the story, then let's roll with that. But you're not David. You are the fearful and frozen army. The soldiers paralyzed and hopeless on the sidelines. You need a David to come and fight the snake warrior in your place. And God's unlikely champion was born in Bethlehem and would go to a city where David dropped Goliath's head and there Jesus would pay for the sins of his children. Your greatest Goliath, sin and death, has been taken care of. So church, live like it. Stop getting mad over little petty things. Stop worrying about temporary situations. Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave. Live like you just saw Goliath hit the ground. How should this story affect you? Just like it affected the people who were present. It should give you peace. Dale Ralph Davis titled his sermon, Glory to God, on the hi- Glory to God in the highest and on earth, thud. <laughs> Live like you've heard the thud. Way number one, you will... Way number one, finding our champion. Who will defeat the serpent warrior? Way number two, finding our place in the story. How does this affect me? Way number three, finding our mission. What does this reveal about God? Now, I'm hitting three of these today. In a typical sermon, I'd only hit hit one. But I want you to see there's different ways to get to Christ. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, 46, David said... This day the Lord will deliver you, speaking to Goliath, will deliver you into my hands and the whole world, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. God wanted all the earth to know that he was in Israel. God is a global God. He desires worship from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people group. It has never been God's desire to stay in Israel. He worked through Israel in order to reach the nations. This fight determined if all the earth would know his name. This battle was one of Satan's unending attempts to keep the whole earth from knowing the name of God. The David and Goliath event is a missionary story. It reveals the heart of God. Why did God allow this event to take place? Because he wanted to reach UPGs. Unreached people groups. There were groups around the earth that didn't know him. And he wanted the world to hear the thud. And we should want the world to hear the thud too. We should want the world to know there is a God. And his name is Jesus. Each week we highlight a UPG, an unreached people group in the worship guide. With hopes that you will go home and research and pray and find pictures to show your kids. 
Every month, a portion of our budget goes to reach unreached people groups. We train you every Sunday. Some of you just came in this Sunday and you're like, this is a different type of place. I know. We train you every Sunday with the expectation that some of you will leave here and bring the gospel to unreached people groups. I don't give you that stupid pick up your stones and go after your giant's trash because that will not sustain you when you die by persecution for reaching one of these unreached people groups. Now, I do have some good news to share with you. I read Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 and it reveals the end around the throne of God and it says a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. It turns out the goal of the David and Goliath story will be met The name of Jesus will be praised by some from all people groups. Let's stand and pray together. Father, what a story. What a story that revealed your heart. I needed to see that today. I needed to see your heart. Your heart for the nations. Father, thank you for working out that David and Goliath event as you did. Because all of us at the time of that event were UPGs. We were unreached people groups. And you came to us. You pursued us. And we give you glory. Now as we sing... Would you clothe our words in the righteousness of Christ? Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.